Welcome to Failing Forward. Pari, can you introduce yourself for our audience today? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. I'm Pari Chaudhary, Senior Technical Advisor for Sexual Reproductive Health Impact with the Health Equity and Rights Team at Care USA. Why is it important for us to be talking about failure? I think, you know, too many times organizations tend to focus on just the successful aspects of it. And if you think about even evaluation and research, for a long time, there were only peer-reviewed publications on studies and programs that actually saw significant impact. And I think that while that is, of course, deeply valuable, what's so much more valuable is also just learning about what the challenges were and how people before you attempted to solve them and address them or maybe fell short of doing that because that's the way in which improvement happens. And if we are all committed to continuous quality improvement, as we should be, and committed to the communities with which we're working globally, uh, the way to do that is for us to acknowledge that we're not the best at everything and it's impossible to be. Um, And the only way to really achieve that in the long term is to acknowledge where we've fallen short, what we could have done better, and also learning from others in the field around us. Um, And I think that is probably the fastest way for us to grow and get better at what we're attempting to do. What's the example you want to be talking to us about today? Uh, So CARE has recently launched a new strategy in terms of how we approach and program for frontline health workers, uh, who, as you know, anyone who's been involved in the space for the last few years will recognize have really come into the forefront of what is required in order for us to achieve all of our sustainable development goals and universal health coverage. The COVID-19 pandemic brought into very intense light the value and role that frontline health workers play in any sort of you know, health programming equation. And now that they are such a heavily talked about and focused on population, I think uh, it would be a value for us to talk today about what some of CARE's lessons around working with that group has been across the globe, sort of where we have pivoted along the way, what kind of adaptations we've made, and how we've adjusted our programming based on what frontline health workers on the ground are telling us is actually happening. It's definitely something we've seen a shift in focusing on the health workers themselves. Before COVID, I think a lot of people weren't really talking about the health workers except as a means to the impact target of often healthy moms and babies, although certainly other kinds of health interventions as well. Talk a little bit more about that. What were we seeing before or what is the example that you're thinking about there? Yeah, I I mean, in general, I think not just CARE, but several organizations in the international development space used to leverage frontline health workers and community health workers as the mechanism through which their programming was being implemented in especially rural and hard to reach communities. Um, and frontline health workers are very much seen as part of the implementing team, they were sort of packaged into program design as one of the approaches that an organization would use in order to achieve our, you know, our full theory of change. And I don't think it was really until uh, maybe the year before and then during the pandemic itself where I there was an explicit acknowledgement of the need for factoring the 
impact of the programming and the participation in the programming on the frontline health workers themselves. The tide is turning um, and CARE is attempting to, you know, participate and sort of facilitate that process um, through this new frontline health worker strategy, which of course we are still in the early phases of. So we are continuing to sort of learn and adapt as we go as well. But um, today I would like to focus primarily on the that transition that we're um, seeing and also being a part of. One of the things you alluded to is that some of these shifts started before COVID in specific pieces of the programming or in particular places. How did we start making that shift? What did we see that wasn't working that prompted us to make the change? Yeah. Um, so CARE fortunately had these very longstanding relationships with specific donors who had invested in and made long-term commitments across a few different countries related to frontline health worker programming. And the I'll talk about one portfolio specifically was across nine countries and it was 13 programs across these nine with one donor. And the idea was that, you know, they were going to commit to 10 years of infrastructure building and resource development and health system strengthening with the intention of essentially introducing ways for country governments and health systems to ensure equity and sustainability of their health programming. And the primary way that they were doing this was through fund and health workers across all of these nine countries. And um, there, I think what happened is that Initially, the program was designed with, you know, the more traditional way of looking at frontline health workers. And these are folks who are helping us implement. They are, they, they are the means through which we reach these populations and so on. And what essentially started, we started to notice organically is that, um, you know, after, because we had the luxury of a 10-year commitment in this program, we were starting to notice that health workers were much different in their capacity between year one and year five. They were the level of involvement, the level of self-advocacy they were engaging in, the ways in which the community was even responding to them, the kind of trust building and relationship building that they had engaged in was obviously much amplified years into the program than it was at the beginning. And um, at some point, the community started to sort of see the frontline health workers as part of them. And so that created, I think, a sense of, okay, if they are, in fact, also a part of the communities in which they're functioning, then they should be receiving benefits that are more than just the, you know, conducting the program on behalf of an organization like CARE. And so um, I, I can't say that there was necessarily one explicit moment, uh, but I think it was just a, you know, layering on of a few different factors and considerations that essentially pointed us to the fact that we weren't doing and, uh, you know, we were attempting to achieve equity of programs and we weren't even treating our own implementing staff equitably because we weren't engaging them in the programming themselves, despite the fact that they lived in those catchment areas that they, you know, like worked and had families and all of that sort of thing. And so um, it, it came, I would say, through small small things. Like, for example, frontline health workers would tell our staff that, okay, in order for me to go out into the community today and do the thing that you're asking me to do, I need someone to watch my kids, or I need this additional set of skills, or I'm running low on supplies. And that, you know, over time started to turn into, yeah, there needs to be almost like a packaged program that is delivered for frontline health workers that's different 
than what the rest of the community is experiencing because they are both part of the um, delivery team and also part of the receiving team. Can you give us a couple examples, one of what you just talked about, where health workers stepped up and said, I feel empowered to do this. I feel like I know I know what to do next and I know how to work for my community. And also the flip side, what is an example where that didn't happen? Example where that might not have happened because we didn't invest in the same way. So when you first asked that question, I thought immediately of Myanmar. Myanmar was part of that, um, the nine country portfolio that I mentioned earlier. And, you know, one of CARE's flagship programs that's not related to frontline health work is is the Village Savings and Loans Association. And it's essentially a a microfinance program that encourages groups to save and is as a group collective, you know, raise funds and save funds for community needs. And so that had already been existing in that community. It had nothing to do with frontline health workers, nothing to do with COVID per se. Um, Frontline health workers were a part of that because they were helping implement and sort of in that community, but it wasn't necessarily unique to them. Um, But essentially we had a full group of people within a community who were actively meeting on a regular basis for years and years and years who had raised funds for community events, for, you know, taking care of folks, for building bridges and so on. Um, And so when the pandemic happened, this group of people was like, okay, we can't really meet anymore because, you know, we have to socially distance and so on. Um, But then when the, I would say like when the intense risk of infection had subsided, the group was wondering sort of how, they could play a role and get involved. And the frontline health workers within that space stepped up and said, well, since we all have this like well-established group who sort of knows a lot about our community, why don't we start to leverage the funds that we've previously raised to towards healthcare needs in the community? And so they essentially redirected the VSLA funds to get, you know, primary like PPE for folks. They um, took care of treatments for particular individuals. And then they took it a step further and the frontline health workers were like, hey, we have all these skill sets that and we're clearly that are clearly in need right now and there's not enough of us to be able to provide to this large community. So they trained the entire VSLA group in first aid provision. And this group of VSLA members essentially became like a, a first responding health force that had, you know, that was not sponsored by the government in any way, but they just, they were sort of the the most that the community had available to them. So they were able to do immunization, they were able to do first aid response, they did vaccine education and so on. And then um, they even took it further and they got connected to the local clinics in the area and essentially started helping them triage patients to determine who needed to see a provider versus who could be taken care of um, you know, within, with a more, more community lens and things like that. So, um, and then they, they took the VSLA and turned it into what they called a VERS, which is a village emergency response fund. And they essentially started, it became, uh, kind of like a health savings account, but for a full group of people. And so, and that is something that, you know, that's an adaptation of VSLA that we had never seen before. And so, and that was not, generated or driven by care staff. It was entirely driven by the frontline health workers who had been in that community. And so that is one example of something that 
happened that was unanticipated, but purely because of the fact that there had been this long-standing investment in, you know, not just infrastructure, but also agency and development of individual folks. Uh, on the flip side, I, I, on, I don't think I have a specific example of a time where it didn't happen because there's obviously a lot of countries that struggled more in the pandemic than others did. And I think that what I've seen from my role on the health team is that essentially the most of the countries where we saw a more dramatic immediate response from frontline health workers were the same countries where there had been these commitments and these long-term programs um, where donors were flexible to allow us to sort of take their funds and um, assign it where it's needed for an emergency response. And so, um, you know, like another another um, example of a very cool type of response that happened was that in Bangladesh, CARE has for years been working in urban settings by working in, inside of garment factories. So, you know, we recognize that garment factory workers often work 18 hours a day, and so they don't have time um, in their schedules to access healthcare. And so as part of a different program, CARE had you know, worked with factory management and owners to negotiate the creation of reproductive health clinics inside the factories themselves. And so um, garment factory workers were able to go get healthcare on their lunch breaks, or they didn't have to leave the campus of the factory to go access healthcare. And when COVID set in, um, essentially those same health clinics were turned into vaccination sites and that led to some of the garment factories in Bangladesh having the highest vaccination rates um, amongst, you know, any organizations in Bangladesh. And that was simply because those frontline health workers and those garment factory workers had for years been accustomed to receiving healthcare there, trusting the spaces in which it was developed. And factory management had already set up all of the necessary, like physical infrastructure required to do that. So it's a... Uh, you know, it's the pandemic, while challenging in a multitude of ways, brought, I think, to the surface all of the unique creativity and innovation that exists within these communities around the world and is sort of just waiting to be tapped. And I think part of what CARE is attempting to do with the frontline health worker strategy is design our programming in a way that helps facilitate an unlocking of all of that potential innovation. One of the pieces you mentioned was training. And as somebody who worked in the health space a long time ago and hasn't been as directly in it for a while now, training was always the biggest thing. And it was always training, very technical training about at what month do you start adding less water to the porridge for the baby who is transitioning off breastfeeding? Uh, exactly what is the timing to administer particular kinds of doses of drugs during delivery? Very, very sort of clinical skill almost kinds of trainings. What else do we need? What you're describing there about self-confidence and, and negotiating power and feeling that you have your own well-being taken care of. What do we have to add beyond those components that are training and supply chain management? Um, I think with when it comes to frontline health workers specifically, I see the equation as almost it's like it's four parts. The first is training because you are you know, that's what everyone's already doing. That's the expectation in terms of you have to obviously capacitate folks to do the kinds of things you're asking them to do. Um, and, but I'll speak less about that one because that is more familiar to everybody. But I think the other three variables in the equation that I see are 
aside from training, you have to also equip folks. And when I say equip, I mean, not just with the physical items that they need in order to do the work that you're asking them to do, but also with the right types of skill sets and the um, protective equipment and the sort of extraneous things that are required in order for them to be able to successfully operate in the environment that they're doing. So for example, during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, the equipment that they would have needed was a little bit more clear, isn't that they needed PPE, they needed um, to be able to sort of maintain social distancing, they needed to be able to transport clients and supplies to folks and things like that. Um, but all sorts of all that kind of things would fall under equip. Um, the third part of the equation that I see is like, I kind of branded as support. Um, and this is part of what I talk about when I say that, you know, we're creating an enabling environment is that if frontline health workers are, frontline health workers are oftentimes women, they are people within the communities that they're trying to serve. They may not have another job outside of being a frontline health worker and so on. And so what is the, what are we doing to support them to, to then create a space in which they are able to actually activate to the full extent that they can? And, um, respond to the community the full in the full way that they can and also have the community understand the role that they're playing. So um, whether that's, you know, through specific services for the frontline health workers themselves, like psychosocial support, mental health support, childcare provision, um, and so on, or whether it's us working with national governments to provide, you know, more of an enabling environment via like accreditation or some sort of official recognition of the role that frontline health workers are playing in the space. So that would be variable number three. And variable number four is something <laughs> that I think um, several organizations globally are still attempting to really figure out. There has been a recognition around the world that it is um, inequitable to ask frontline health workers to work for free. And um, it is unreasonable, I think, for organizations to expect to achieve universal health coverage and sustainable de development goals and for governments to be able to achieve true healthcare coverage across all uh, marginalized and hard to reach populations without the use of frontline health workers. And if frontline health workers are such a pivotal part of all of these movements, there's that great report from 2019 that WHO did that's delivered by women led by men that talks about a lot of the issues you just raised on gender equality. The last mile health workers are majority women in most parts of the world. The people who are making the decisions, including the budget decisions, are majority men in most parts of the world. What do we have to do to change that? I know that CARE is working on bringing actual frontline health workers into our advocacy spaces in a bigger way than before. So for example, in a few months, uh, we are going to be on Capitol Hill talking to several legislators um, and having a day with them where we're sharing about work that's going on around the world. And we are bringing frontline health workers from four different countries to represent their interests and also talk about their experiences at the, um, you know, not just during the pandemic, but before that and since then about how things have shifted within their communities. So essentially I'm saying that one of the things we need to do is that organizations like ours need to be much more intentional about creating space at the table um, for those roles. And also not just space, but you know, allocating leadership roles within our own programs to frontline health workers. 
what do I do to keep up the momentum? The COVID pandemic is officially declared over. It's not pandemic status anymore. It changed the frame, right? It provided a wake up call. How do we make sure we keep learning from that instead of saying now it's over business as usual? Frontline health worker strategy, you know, was articulated over the course of 2021 and 2022. We are just starting to operationalize it on the ground now, which I think was one of perhaps the things we could have improved in terms of the rollout of the strategy. But one of the ways in which we just internally are attempting to sort of continue to invest in this momentum and build the movement is that the frontline health worker strategy has a very strong evaluation and learning component built into it. And we're also attempting to do things that we haven't really explored before. Like for example, care has been involved in the digital health space, but we are with the frontline health worker strategy, we are attempting to roll out a digital health solution that is scaled at a level that we have not previously engaged in. And so that I'm sure will lead as to a lot of different, you know, like lessons around how to do this, what are some best practices around this? Perhaps one of the other things that we should be thinking about is that we shouldn't wait for the next pandemic to be able to sort of take these steps on our own because we saw it happen and we knew that we were perhaps not as prepared as we could have been. So let's try to avoid that for the future. If people who are listening to this podcast, if you could only tell them do this one thing next, what would that one thing be? Uh, well, specifically for frontline health workers, I would say read the frontline health worker strategy that cares put together. <laughs> but when I, if I wasn't making a plug, I would say do this. The one thing that you should do next is before you implement your program, you need to invest in a baseline community needs assessment. Um, and I know that people do that now, but I think that that tends when Typically during program design and implementation, that tends to be one of the things that goes if there are budget constraints. But I think it's so deeply valuable because it will it could revolutionize and change the type of programming that you have really. Um, and I think it's important as part of that needs assessment, if you're working with frontline health workers, to sit down and ask them what they want to get out of this. Like what what are they hoping happens at the end of their participation in this program what are their own concerns in their lives what what do their lives look like what is their level of understanding around their vision for what they are hoping in their future and things like that which honestly i i think for a lot of people might sound fluffy but it's the only way in which we can really achieve this idea of agency and well-being for frontline health workers globally um, because one of the things that I don't think organizations like ours have done a good enough job of accounting for is you have these populations of women frontline health workers around the world who are essentially doing the hard work for us in pandemics, in emergencies, in crisis settings. I think a needs assessment with your frontline health workers is probably one of the ways to go. Is there anything else you want to say to the audience that I didn't give you a chance to talk about today? Um, I think perhaps just the recognition that while everything I've said is <laughs> essentially attempting to be a best practice, that there also is a heavy level of contextualization that needs to happen when, when you're developing a program for a particular country, which of course everyone knows. But um, the idea behind that is simply that, you know, folks, let's, let's say a frontline health worker in Nigeria, 
who has now been experiencing a long-term protracted crisis um, is going to have very different needs perhaps than someone in a more developed setting. And so a frontline health worker strategy like what CARE has developed is an all-encompassing document, but in terms of its operationalization, which I, as I mentioned, you know, we're still working on right now, it could look very different in different scenarios. And so it's just to account for that, which is where the needs assessment comes in. Really, so, Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Pari. It's been really interesting to listen to you talk about this journey and looking forward to what is the next usual. Thank you. It's good to be here. And I appreciate, you know, you taking the time to put a spotlight on this issue.